Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey, all you avid listeners out there, this is Dr. John. And if you enjoy what you're hearing on these joint podcasts with me and my fiance, Jory Rose, please know that we are offering a week-long retreat in Costa Rica in April of 2023 at one of the top resorts in the country where the body workers are next level and you will learn from myself and Jory how to be in better relationship to yourself, to your loved one, and to everyone else. This is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Please feel free to check out the podcast notes for more links, details, and info. Thanks so much, and now on with the show. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. And I am extremely honored to have with me today, Andrew Thorpe King. And he is the author of Failure Rules. And he's also a lot of other things. Yeah, I think there's the book right there. Thank you. And, you know, we all know the experience and the immediate results of failure just suck. They wipe us out. It wipes us out. But if you follow the rules of failure, according to Andrew, seeing beyond the mess and picking through the good stuff left in the rubble, you can move forward into success. Andrew's advice is embrace the F word and let hard times make you stronger because after it sucks, failure rules. So a little bit about Andrew's background. He is an executive fintech banker. He's a spy novelist, a speaker, a punk rocker, a podcaster, an ex-bodybuilder, a cigar lover, and serial entrepreneur. He founded two independent record labels, Thorpe Records and Sailor's Grave Records, and has invested in many spaces, including online lending, fitness, and independent music. He is also a serial failure. He has crashed and burned through bankruptcy, divorce, mortgage default, public assistance, and multiple business failures. But like, in the ja- like a jack-in-the-box after a punch, he pops back up every time, rebuilding his life, informed by failure, with a big smile on his face. Andrew, how are you doing? Welcome. I'm doing great. Thanks for the uh, introduction there. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I was excited to to have you on, partly because I wanted to talk about the book, partly because I've been a fan of punk rock for many years as well. Um, So let's go into failure and sort of what made you go after this concept of failure in book form? Yeah. So for your listeners out there and your and your uh, viewers, the book is called Failure Rules with an exclamation mark, kind of a defiant fist in the air kind of uh, proclamation. Uh, subtitle is The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics. So uh, that covers that's both specific and general there. Is that a phoenix on the book? I just noticed the outline of a phoenix. That's right. Rising so from the ashes. Why, yeah, it's a phoenix coming gotcha. out of the fire. So it aligns with Failure Rule number one, which is Failure Purifies. Uh, and so the Phoenix imagery is obviously, uh, you know, not unique, but it is also apropos. So it's uh, throughout the book. It's yeah. one of my favorite symbols. Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah, actually, um, you know, although I'm mostly a, a punk rock and hardcore fan, it was actually an Eminem song that my cousin had texted me uh, during a particular hard time where I was going through two twin failures. Uh, you know, one was a business divorce, one was a marital divorce, and I had found myself living in a hotel room with no office to go to by day and no home to go to by night. Oh. He had texted me the lyrics of Beautiful Pain by Eminem, and not really into mainstream music much, but I listened to the song, and there's some imagery in the lyrics of the Eminem song about the Phoenix rising from the flames. And that song ended up being like a real song of strength that booed me through that hard time. I ended up putting it on my Failure Rules soundtrack playlist. It's on Spotify and Apple Music. 
kind of an outlier because it's not a punk or hardcore song, but it was really from that song and from how that song really gave me strength during that time that the Phoenix imagery made its way into the book and ultimately on the cover. Awesome. So you have five failures that you included in this book, right? And what was it about those failures that was significant to you? So it's not so much five failures. There's five rules of failure, right? So this, okay. so this of the book kind of revealed itself over time. The genesis of the writing was, it was late 2013. I was uh, kind of going through those twin failures that I just mentioned. I was taking a beach walk and I was thinking about my 20s and 30s and kind of all the off-road uh, entrepreneur adventuring that I had done in my 20s and 30s as I was trying to work to align and marry money and meaning, right? And that was that's ultimately kind of been my quest. How do I marry money? I love that. You know, because they're both necessary. A deficiency in one or the other is going to cause issues in, in, in the wholeness of your being and your integrity and how you totally walk agree. And, and pull value out of it. So, you know, I'm thinking about all these things and, you know, what have I learned from all these, you know, uh, near catastrophic uh, crises and failures that I had gone through, both from a business standpoint, from an emotional development standpoint, from relationship standpoint, you know, from financial standpoint, you know, all these I mean, occupational uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, malaise, all these things that I had dealt with and struggled through and, and what was the value and, um, you know, everything from, you know, Outside pursuits is being a bodybuilder to starting my own record labels to owning my own gym to starting online lending companies to being a financial planner to all these different pursuits. Uh, and I was thinking of uh, the quote by Winston Churchill that success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And that was always the one thing that kept me going. I had this endorphin of the spirit, which was my enthusiasm. And it was often, you know, kind of triggered and, and echoed and sustained by the soundtrack of my life, which is punk rock. So I'm listening to Motorhead on the beach, Ace of Spades. I'm listening to Hard Times by the Cro-Mags. John Joseph, the singer of the Cro-Mags, who's also a triathlete, Harry Christian devotee, author, wrote the PMA Effect. He wrote the forward to the book. And it was in this kind of crucible moment where I started thinking of some ideas and really kind of some of the lessons I've learned. And I was convicted to write a book on the value of failure. Fast forward seven years later, I finally finished what I thought was the deliverable manuscript to the editing team after multiple iterations. And through those iterations, you know, the first draft was shit, just like Hemingway always says, first draft is always shit. Um, it was really almost like me just dumping my own experiences on the page. But as I went back and, and molded it and um, shaped it, you know, I was able to distill lessons from my own experiences which ended up kind of being lessons attached to each chapter. Uh, and then I would layer in a wide variety of case studies. I mean, everybody from uh, bowl, the professional bowler Thomas Smallwood to author Stephen Pressfield to legendary boxer Jack Johnson to punk rocker Henry Rollins, spy novelist Vince Flynn, you know, billionaire Sarah Blakely, all these different case studies where there was some sort of connection to the lesson. And I layered them into the book. So it wasn't just about me anymore. It was, it was more reader-facing, more applicable, a wide cross-section of, of walks of life. Uh, and then as I looked at the various lessons, they kind of bucketed into different rules of failure. Mm. And then that's how I structured it. So each rule of failure is really a, a part of the book uh, where all the chapters in that part, uh, although they have their individual lessons, those lessons line up and roll up to the rules of failure. So, um, you know, failure rule number one, as I mentioned, is failure purifies. It's the idea that uh, in failure spaces, if you are able to step out and be a 
objective observer of your failure event, not so much an emotional participant, which is difficult. That's going to be a piece of it a little bit. But if you're able to step out at some point and be an objective observer instead of an emotional participant, you can see the failure event for what it is, and you can find ways to pull value out of it, even though you want to avoid failure anyway. I mean, let's let's face it, the tagline is, after it sucks, failure rules. Failure still sucks. Yeah. This is failure porn. This isn't saying go fail, be reckless. That's not what this is about. But if you're doing difficult things, pursuing difficult paths, and doing things that are in alignment with your unique calling journey, where you're trying to manifest your unique value to the world, chances are you're going to encounter failure. Chances are you might encounter it more frequently. So it behooves us to premeditatively think about it, how we're going to you know, metabolize it, leverage it, and optimize it. So may I, may I pause you there for a second? Because I I love what you're saying about stepping out of the emotion of the failure and being a more objective observer. I think of that as kind of stepping out of the thought stream, right? And having some distance between you and what's going on in your life. And one of the best tools I know of for that is from Ethan Cross, who wrote Chatter, which is all about the internal chatter in our head. But it's basically speak to yourself in the third person rather than the first person. Because if you think about how it sounds in your head when you're in the shit, that's right. It sounds like, oh my God, I can't take this shit anymore. This sucks. I can't handle this. And it's all first person singular. Mm-hmm. And if you can make the switch in that moment to speaking to yourself in third person and just be like, John, take a deep breath, relax. You got this. There's some lessons to learn here. Let's look at this calmly. It's a huge difference. And it's one of the most powerful tools for that specific piece that you just mentioned that is out there, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's not something that's intuitive for most people. Obviously, you kind of have to think about that ahead of time. Like that was certainly not intuitive me, intuitive to me as I went through failures in my twenties and thirties. It wasn't until I actually wrote the book and stepped back and realized that ultimately I had to get to those places the hard way on many of those failure events and invoke that before I was able to actually step out and find the path forward. So now. You know, even since I wrote the book and, and uh, since it's come out in the past three months, there's events in my life where I'm like, oh, yeah, how do I deal with this? Oh, let me look at the book again. Like the book was written just yeah. as much for me as a future reference, uh, you know, uh, you know, guidepost as it is for anybody else. And, you know, I have a chapter in there where I, I quote Jocko Willing talking about chaos. And the, the title of the chapter is um, Leverage Chaos as an Idea Engine. And it's this idea that when you're in failure, you're in that space and things are chaotic. If you're able to step out, look at it objectively, even though chaos can be a threat if handled incorrectly. And sometimes it simply just is a threat. But oftentimes chaos is just an energy. It's a power. Uh, the dis, disarray of your life, the disruptions that happen in your life, they're just events. And if you step out, you might be able to look at that picture and find a way to shape it to your benefit to figure out how it can make you grow and step into the next best version of yourself. And that's a fascinating point as well, really well taken, because I think we as humans have these competing desires, almost paradoxical desires or drives, one of which is the desire for chaos, the desire for order. Put another way, I think we have these desires for novelty and these desires for certainty or these drives Mm. for certainty. And I think most of us in this day and age lean far more towards certainty or order. Mm -hmm. And we're more afraid of the other side, the darker side. Right. So again, now you're touching on another kind of term I use in the book. So I actually have like a definition of terms in the book, 26 terms I use in the book and how I use them. Right. And some of them are borrowed terms from, from others. Some of them are terms that maybe I invented. One of them is safety file. Right. And so failure rule number two goes to that point. Failure rule number two is nothing is safe. Um, and uh, it talks about this idea uh, you know, using the example of Mike Rowe and his show Dirty Jobs, he had an episode called Safety Third, 
wasn't so much that you say, put safety third. He's saying, you know, let's not always put safety first. Let's weigh it against competing values. Sometimes it ought to be first. Sometimes it ought to be lower in the rankings. You know, I'm an executive banker. You know, risk management is always on the top of my mind, but you have to weigh that against reward, innovation, uh, seeking out the adjacent possible. So it is that balance, balance of chaos and order, that balance of uh, change and moving forward while also not letting that be so accelerated where you can't function, right? Too much chaos, you can't function. Too much order, you're stagnant, you're bored, you're not living your fullest life. And that's a difficult balance. But you know, to the idea of federal rule number two, nothing is safe. I think that um, this safety file mentality is something that is pervasive. It's, it's, it's an undertone of the education system. Uh, we're taught to think linearly. We're thought taught to avoid anything that might have too much risk or even a little risk. And I think that really holds people back from doing interesting things, from doing things that might uniquely align with their own talent stack composite uh, and uh, holds people back often, I think, from really blessing the world with uh, their highest use because they choose safety. Which, in the end, I think is also an illusion because even you know, like like James Carey, uh, you know, Jim Carrey, the comedian, said, you know, you can do something you don't want to do because you think it's safe, but it's not safe anyway. You know, it's still not safe. You can still get yeah. fired from that job, right? That guy has a lot of wisdom. Spectrum, you know, yeah, Jim Carrey is like that's a deep guy. Uh, I'm always yeah. impressed with what he says. Yeah, and and so rule number three then failure rule number three is is money is spiritual, which seems like it's not attached to failure, but it's really the idea that um, money can be a powerful tool to lift us out of failure spaces. Uh, it's it's the idea that if, if used correctly, money is an agnostic tool. It's a thank you note. It's a multiplier of blessings. If we avoid the edge territory spaces of envy and greed, which I view as malevolent twin siblings, they're really just the same spirit with different manifestations. If we can learn to avoid that, we can see money for what it is, where we're not either reviling it, nor are we worshiping it, and we see it as a tool where it's really, um, you know, when you place value on something, it's a measure of your thankfulness. So place value is measured thankfulness. And if you view it that way, when you go about doing your work or thinking how you're going to offer your talents and your skills and your energy to the world, um, you, you think of it as, as such. You're not just out for yourself. You're out to bless the world. And anything that comes back in return is a gift and it's a thank you note to you. And you think of that in the reverse too, whether you're tipping somebody, whether you're a boss and you're paying somebody, you know, and it's the idea of kind of decoupling this kind of like demonization of money and decoupling mm -hmm. the unhealthy worship or elevation of money. Uh, and if you're staying in that mid-space, it is spiritual and powerful and can be help you out of all kinds of failures, whether it's depression, economic failure, um, those type of things. So I, I love the uh, the twin terrors, I guess, of envy and greed, um, because I think that emotion comes in. It's a lot, often largely connected with money and usually more negative emotions and positive emotions, to your point. How do you define envy and greed? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think we know it when we see it, right? I think it's, uh, you know, some of the examples I use in the book is I talk about, you know, obviously the well-known Gordon Gecko uh, motif for greed. Uh, oh, yeah, Wall Street. Yeah, I talk about him and, you know, greed is good and all that, which is an obvious conflation of, uh, you know, a healthy uh, desire to move society forward versus, uh, you know, some sort of selfish 
um, you know, extraction of, of wealth for, you know, purposes that aren't that high. Uh, and then I use the example of the, the movie Envy with Jack Black and Ben Stiller. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it's an hilarious movie. My favorite I saw movie. it. I don't remember it that well. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, just that idea where like Jack Black's character, like he becomes wealthy, but in his wealth, it's all his positive characteristics that end up, you know, uh, you know, multiplying and, and getting larger uh, while Ben Stiller is still holding on to this envy and he becomes kind of the detestable character in the movie and rightly so where Jack Black's trying to graft him into his new life like not judging him because of the economic chasm that's been created you know wants to take him golfing and make him partner in his business with no buying conditions and it's the, it's the idea that money is not good and bad or wealth is not good and bad but it just it just multiplies whatever spirit you already have, you know, and if yeah, you it amplifies really, who you already are. Oh, well, and so I think of envy as I make a distinction between envy and jealousy, where jealousy is I have what or you have what I want. And mm -hmm. jealousy can be used as a positive motivator where I could actually use that jealousy to motivate myself to get going to earn myself what you have. Whereas envy is you have what I want and I don't want you to have it. So I'm <laughs> right. willing to destroy you or yes. take what you have or, you know, cut you down in some way to get what you have. Yeah. So the difference and, there would be resentment, right? Resentment exists in the envy definition yeah. that you describe. It does not exist in the jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, those are just... can also be like just inspired. Um, I yeah. mean, because jealousy still comes off as negative, but yeah, you can, you can say I'm jealous of somebody, but there's no, there's no animosity. But I, I do think, I do think it's, a normal, like if your friend has really good news, like, Hey, I just won a million bucks in lotto. I think it's a normal human emotion for most people to feel a twinge of jealousy. And then I think you can flip that quickly to something else, like being authentically happy for them, celebrating with yes. them and yes. using that as inspiration. I don't know if lotto is a great example on that one, but you know, if I earned a million dollars, then, you know, using sure. that as inspiration. Right. Uh, so I think it's, it's kind of that awareness that all emotions are there for a purpose. Nothing really, you don't really want to try and banish any of them or sure. deny them or suppress them. Right. So that's your reflexive emotion. Fine. Don't let it yeah. go the extra step where it's kind of this decisive uh, envy where really, I mean, a stronger manifestation of that would be the word covetous, you know, just being yeah. wanting what somebody else has, not wanting them to have it, resenting them for having it, wanting to take it away from them. Um, wanting well, them to and I do think, of what they're not. As a society, I think we really struggle with being genuinely happy for and celebrating other people, other people's successes. I think yeah. a far more, you know, common reaction by the majority is to feel envy or jealousy and it drags them down. And then they want to drag the person who had a success down as well. Exactly. I see that all too often. I mean, I think that's, to me, that's how I think about the core manifestation of envy. It's, it's um, not even, yeah, it's, it's more like, um, you know, I'm envious that you have it, and I don't think you should have it, and I think it should be taken away, and I want to see you knocked down, and I'm not really looking to elevate myself in a way to mirror what you have, uh, because I just want you to not have it. I want you to feel uh, the emptiness that I feel. You know? Well, in, in that example, I would say that person... That person's really afraid to take a risk on their own to even have the chance of the success. Exactly right. Exactly. Um, all right. So what are we on three? So we're on four now. After money is spiritual. 
Yeah. So failure rule number four, it's called build your thing one and thing two dependency. And thing one and thing two has nothing to do with cat in the hat. You know, I, I can imagine something more like a disheveled Tony Soprano waking up in his white bathrobe, smoking his first cigar of the day and saying, <clears throat> you have your thing one enabler pursuit over here and your thing two North Star dream pursuit over there. And one builds the other. And you know, it's kind of that imagery in my head with the thing one and thing two. And it's this idea that thing one is like an enabler pursuit. It's some sort of low meaning, uh, more safe pursuit or structure or scaffolding that you build in your life intentionally, knowing that nothing is safe. You can't always go after your dreams straightforward uh, with no uh, guardrails or, or no interest, you know, kind of undergirding. Uh, and then that then enables potentially with more probability success for you to go after your dream, your, your North Star aspirational dream, uh, which might be more risky, um, you know, over time. Uh, and so I use some creative examples. I mean, there's the obvious, like bang down the day job uh, and, and do your side hustle towards your North Star dream. I mean, that's the obvious one. And there's some examples of that. But there's also some creative examples. So I knew two brothers once uh, who came to the U.S. from Lebanon. Uh, their their dream uh, in the U.S. was to build their own businesses, uh, kind of a retail empire. That was their pursuit of happiness. They didn't want to go a slow route. So they thought of a creative way to gather the seed money they needed. And they ended up working for Disney on Ice for several years where they had Disney on Ice pay for their lodging and pay for all the food. So they had no home, no expenses. They were married to the road, you know, wherever they roam, there their head lay, just like the Metallica song. And <laughs> um, they were working at the merch truck, selling stuff to the mothers of, of little girls that wanted all these princess swag. And they did that for years. They saved up their seed money. They eventually then started these businesses and in this one city they live in, they own gas stations, cigar lounges, gyms, nightclubs. And, you know, they built this retail portfolio. Wow. And it's like they use this kind of sacrificial, low meaning thing one enabler pursuit to help them on their aspirational thing two, uh, North Star Tree. So build your, build your thing one and thing two dependencies. Failure rule number four is really more about failure mitigation. It's about failure prevention. Because again, failure only rules after it sucks. And the, uh, the self-evident failure rule is to try to avoid it. <laughs> but you can't always, so you still need the other five rules. Yeah, I really like that rule as well. I, I Over the years, I've had a lot of teenage clients who, you know, I would ask them kind of, what do they want to do? What are their values? What's their North Star? And most of them would have this kind of huge pipe dream, like, I want to be a rap star, or I want to be a social media influencer. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm totally in support of that. And what's your plan B? So what's your thing one? What's your thing two? Like, you know, okay, if you want to work towards being a rap star and you're passionate about that, God bless you. And what are you going to do to make money in the meantime? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's actually just happened this conversation with my son, you know, this week. Because and how old is he? He's, uh, he'll be 22 soon. So, okay. You know, right in the sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, there's there's other creative ways to do this. So for me, myself, as I was breaking into the music industry, um, my thing one was actually working in the music industry at day jobs. So there was a real synergy there. I was getting a paid education by day for what I was doing at night as I was building my record labels. I was gathering contacts. I was still honoring and separating the time between the, the job and the pursuits. But there's this obvious continuity and through line. So that's another approach. Get a job in the field you want to get into that might end up fueling and feeding and educating you for your own entrepreneurial venture in that space, find a crack in that space, you know, even if it's low paying, you know, um, low responsibility. Um, so I ended up getting a job at a, a, 
extreme metal label relapse record records as the wholesale running their wholesale department and did that for several years before I ended up getting a job in the Midwest and becoming one of the top salesmen for a, a music distributor, Lumberjack Distribution, um, helped, helped to break a lot of bands and, and do the retail campaigns back when that was a thing prior to the digitization of music. Um, but that's another example uh, of a creative way to get to that North Star. Because again, the idea that you just go after it head first with no guardrails, with no scaffolding to help support it, you know, it's uh, it's not so wise. Yeah, I, I love it. I think it's sage advice. So what's the fifth one? Failure rule number five is, you know, arguably one of the most powerful ones, I think. It's you are not your failures. It's the idea that you need to decouple your identity from your failure events. Doesn't mean that you don't have to face some of the consequences or messiness that might result from your failures, whether they're failures that um, you know kind of emerge because of gaps in decision making, or they're ethical failures, uh, you know, or they're just failures because we do live in an unsafe world, and sometimes just mere participation in the human condition can cause us to uh, you run into failures. I mean, whether it's sickness or war or um, you know. Depression or COVID or, you know, just the volatility of the free market. Sometimes failures have nothing to do with their own actions, right? Yeah. Um, but either way, it's not taking it on as being who you are. It's not um, some sort of permanent resume point that speaks to who you are. But what does speak to you is how you respond to those failures and how you um, use them potentially uh, as tools to really build a rich story of, uh, of meaning because of how you handle them. And that's really kind of the essential crux of the book is going through these stories of people who had failure events and turn them into beautiful um, pivot points in their story where without those failure moments, they might not be as special as they became. Yeah. And, and I do think, I mean, we talked to, before the interview, we went live that, you know, this idea of fail forward fast. And I was mentioning how for me personally, failure has been something that's been very difficult over the years. I didn't have much experience with it when I was younger. Then I had an entrepreneurial venture in my early 30s that went well for about seven years. And then it crashed and burned with the economy. Mm. And, you know, I was not able at that time to understand you are not your failures. I was my failure at that right. point because I let people down and I was just too, too caught up in the emotion of the moment. And I also think that people, the most interesting, best people I know are people that have suffered at least one failure, if not multiple failures. So I think it, you know, the, the process of going through a significant failure in life also gives you greater empathy and understanding for what others might be going through. That's right. It, it helps you with the, the, the gratitude muscle, uh, your humility instincts, your ability to discern, your ability to not be judgmental and your own ability to perceive the decoupling of a failure event and somebody's competency in others where those without failure events, I think have this blinding where they just think everything they touch turns to gold. And if somebody has a failure, it must be because they're incompetent or stupid or because yeah. they don't know what they're doing or they're reckless. Uh, and sometimes that could be the case, right? But uh, I think more often than not, it's just a symptom of living in a you know, an unsafe world or in doing difficult things where failure is going to be more likely and, and probable. And we ought to go those paths anyway, if we're called to do it. Yeah. And I like the, just the, in terms of languaging, I like the idea of 
I experienced a failure, not I am a failure. That's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, great points. And, and I think, you know, I talk about this real, you know, simply and easily, like it's just, oh, you're just, you're not your failure. Don't worry about it. You know, no, you went bankrupt. That's great. That's not who you are. I mean, it's not that simple. Like I did go through bankruptcy. You know, I did, uh, you know, uh, you know, go through mortgage default. I was on public assistance. I was estranged from my son for seven months. You know, I I, I was, uh, I did go through kind of, uh, you know, litigation issues in business where I was being sued by multiple, multiple multimillionaires at once, while also also being investigated by the feds for, for something that, that the business didn't do. Like I've gone through all these things and you will feel like you are a failure when everything is going wrong, potentially if it's in quick succession. But the only way out of it is to get out of that mindset and to do what I was speaking of earlier is to step out, be an objective observer, think of a creative way to shape that chaos into something that helps you move forward. Find those micro momentum um, pieces of positivity in your circumstances and hyper focus on those. Use that endorphin of the spirit. Find a way to manufacture enthusiasm. Make sure that you know you commit to action because mood follows action. And you got to find a way to move forward. And it's hard to do that if you're constantly stuck in the initial understandable mindset of feeling like you are equivalent to the failures and that that is actually your identity. Yeah, and, and I absolutely agree with you. And I, I think it's, it's a great reminder that you will feel guilt, embarrassment, shame, anger, sadness, depression, grief after a failure. Yeah. The the goal is how quickly can you bounce out of that with your resiliency? How quickly can you reframe it? How quickly can you... I, one of the questions I love is, what am I supposed to learn from this? Because if we can find a meaning in that wreckage or that shit heap that we find ourselves in in the moment, then that pain and suffering become much less so. They become informative. And, and so I, I think it's... All these are, are great lessons and great reminders. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. To what extent do you were you aware of feeling shame with some of the failures that you've had? Shame being, I'm unworthy of connection, love, and belonging. Oh, I mean that definitely hits. I actually write about in the introduction of the book. Um, you know, a moment where I finally realized. Uh, you know, so just to back up a little bit, my my record labels were at one point. I went full time with them after working in the music industry. I had had a string of success, uh, and then within the first two years of going full time, uh, you know, uh, there was a convergence of of circumstances. Um, I had over invested in records, <laughs> being too enthusiastic, uh, and at the same time, there was the the um, uh, the expedited uh, conversion of the music industry from a physical model to mm-hmm. the digitization of music, which at the time we really didn't anticipate would happen that quickly. Uh, and so I had retailers that had relied on for 25% of my sales going out of business, returning product that then, you know, I owed money back and then also had fees. So this convergence of financial things and I had to put the record labels on ice uh, full time. And I had a lot of debt that funded the record labels that, w- that I had personal guarantee on. And so I, I, I conceded it at one day that I realized like I had no way out. I was going to have to go through this bankruptcy. And it was a personal bankruptcy where the, the company still survived because they weren't worth anything at that point in time, although they are now. But at that point in time, they weren't. So there was no nothing to really give up in the bankruptcy for them, right? Um, and I just remember the that day just feeling, I mean, my, my marriage wasn't going well. I wasn't feeling love at home. Uh, you know, I was I was drunk before noon on my office floor in despair. 
you know, and then burn the rest of the day in a strip club, which is not really in alignment with my my normal habits or morality, right? Particularly, you know, at that time as a married man. And, you know, I share that not because I'm proud of it, but I share that because, you know, if you've been in those states where you've hit those those depths of despair where you feel like you can't find love, you know, at home, uh, you know, in your relationship with God or anywhere else in the world, um, you know, you're you're in that broken place, you know. And I, I talk about the Hemingway quote uh, where he says, um, the world breaks most of us uh, and those that don't break, it kills. And so it's mm-hmm. the idea that you will get broken, um, but, you know, and also the quote also says, and those that are broken usually, you know, are stronger in those broken places. So it's the idea that, okay, break, you can break, but do not get killed and find a way to get stronger in those broken places. Uh, and to me, the way to get stronger in those broken places is to talk about it and to talk about how you got stronger in those broken places and talk about, yeah, I got up and I became who I am today. But I did have those moments. I had those failure moments where I identified with my failures, where I was in just such confusion and despair. Uh, and it took some, you know, some some strength and some fortitude uh, to eventually get off the floor and to piece my way forward and to find that micro momentum to rebuild my life. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And and I think the reason I ask about shame in particular is because I think most men if you would have asked me three or four years ago, had I experienced much shame, I would have been like, no shame. What are you talking about? And then when I started really looking for it, I was like, Oh yeah, there's some right there. And I think that shame is a kind of the granddaddy, the one of the strongest emotions we can feel. And it, it just out volumes, everything else. Like it's just so powerful and so loud. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think, I want to normalize it for other men out there who are going yeah. through failure because yeah. I think it's absolutely normal. It's just fucking painful. And it's not productive in the long term. It's sometimes yeah. necessary to feel. Like you said, it's you not true. It's not true, but it's a feeling. And feelings yeah. aren't always true, right? So yeah. that's it's a feeling that will come that eventually you have to process and reject and step yeah. outside and say, yeah, I might be feeling this, but I'm not going to acknowledge this feeling or validate it. And instead, I'm going to intentionally, you know, um, discover a different truth that actually will mobilize me forward. And I think to even find that mindset in the heart of a failure in the, or in the heart of a shame moment, you kind of have to be thinking about that beforehand. You have to be someone who is reading, who is introspective, who is, you know, meditating, praying, whatever it might be, who, uh, you know, finds ways to have surpluses of solitude and reflection in in your life. Yeah. And I think all that builds greater emotional awareness, emotional granularity, self-awareness, which you need later on down the road in order to pull yourself out of that shit heap more quickly. That's right. That's right. The shit heap. (laughs) I don't know. That's what I call it. I don't know what you call it. Clusterfuck. I don't know. Um, so sometimes me, it's a heap. Sometimes it's a it's part of it. <laughs> some, yeah. Sometimes it's a pile of manure. I, I like the story. There was a story of uh, you know two two brothers. One was really entitled and and pessimistic and depressive. The other one was super optimistic and happy all the time. And the parents gave him for Christmas two really different presents. And one, the one pessimistic depressive brother, they gave a, a new like PlayStation Five. Mm-hmm. And he unwraps it and he was all disappointed. He's like, where's the games? Like, how, man, I got to hook this up now. What a pain in the ass. To the other son, they gave him a big pile of horse manure. And the son is all, you know, the optimistic, happy son's digging through the, he's got shit all over him. He's in the pile of shit. He's like, 
And the parents are like, why are you so happy? And he's like, well, with all this horse shit around, there's got to be a pony around somewhere. <laughs> Seems to be right. appropriate. I don't know. Yeah, it's an extreme example, but it's, it's that type of mindset, right? Yeah. I'm certainly more of the latter. I'm more of the, give me some horse shit and I'll find a horse kind of mentality. <laughs> I mean, so let me ask you all of that, you know, but uh, it, it sounds fantastical, but let me tell you, it works in real life. But it's, it makes it's all it it the framework is a lens through yeah. which we look at the world. It really is. And that lens is changeable. Absolutely. And events aren't positive or negative in many, in many ways. I mean, there's certainly there's things that happen in the world that are absolutely horrible. Right. But I think most events aren't really positive or negative. They're just, you know, it depends on our perception of them. And yeah. um it takes time to to think about how you're going to perceive things ahead of them occurring. To yeah, uh, absolutely you. Let me ask you this: This is no segue question. Um, so I, I love the research done by Jared Clifton, University of Pennsylvania, where he talks about primal world beliefs, and we, you know, what he they seem to be very, very powerful and foundational. And it's the idea of what do we believe about the world at large? So to what extent do you see the world as good versus bad or safe versus dangerous or alive versus mechanistic on like a one through a hundred scale? And I like bringing that down. These are not world beliefs, but what do we believe or what do you believe about people in general, for example? And, you know, to what extent or on a one through a hundred scale, would you say people are good versus bad, honest versus dishonest, would help you versus would not, given that you're an optimist? Where, where would you say, how, what percentage of people would you say are generally good and trying their best? Generally good and trying their best. Um, I mean, I would say over 50%, um, but I think there's a lot of people increasingly that are absorbing messaging and culture that gives an excuse to uh, not be their highest self and to not try their best. And then to even feel good about being in that state. And so that is something that I'm concerned about. Uh, that said, I'm still optimistic because most people I meet on a daily basis are trying their best. Uh, they're trying to get by. Um, even if they're a little nasty in private, they're usually pretty nice in public and that can still have a positive effect on the world. <laughs> you know, yeah. if they're controlling their emotions and the way that they treat people, even if inside they're thinking something differently, um, you know, our actions speak, uh, speak more than sometimes our interior thoughts. Yeah. I, I just think it's an interesting thought experiment because I would say roughly 85% of people are generally good, generally honest. I remember I asked a client one time who's pretty depressive and he said 20% of people are good and honest. Mm, yeah. And it strikes me as those are two radically different worlds that we live in, although we live in the same exact world. world. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, I mean, we're all just guessing, right? This is just how we feel. I mean, I don't have... It's just, data. yeah, it's our perception. It's our, you know, it's what is the rule you're applying to the world or people or self? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that... It just kind of fascinates me. So um, I want to get to the uh, punk stuff in a little bit, but one more question. What's your biggest piece of advice for people whose fear is holding them back from take, taking the leap towards something that they're passionate or find meaning in? Um, again, I would say two things. I'd point back to failure rule number four. If you're really afraid of it, find a way to build that low meaning scaffolding, uh, some sort of an enabler pursuit that can you know, financially or otherwise 
kind of stabilize you, kind of the, the order part of the chaos order dichotomy, uh, so that you feel a little more confident in going after what might be a more risky pursuit. Um, and then think about you know your future self and how you're going to feel if you don't pursue that. And think about the power of destroying future regret, uh, that if you don't do this, uh, that regret might be stronger than if you do it and it fails or it doesn't work out. Uh, and that has always been how I make my decisions. Anything that is burned in me, I chase till it either fails, partially succeeds, or fully succeeds. And regardless of those outcomes, I'm always satisfied because I know I'm never going to regret. I'm never going to be in my deathbed yeah. like, I really wanted to do this, and I didn't try it because of this excuse or this fear. I, I don't have that at this stage of my life. Everything that's burned inside me, I pursued. Yeah, and, and let me just slow those down a second because I think those are really, two really good pieces of advice. I think there's three in there, but I remember two. But one is destroying the power of regret, which I think yeah. is a really good way to go. Like, am I going to regret this later? Because I, I agree with you 100%. I don't want to live my life later with a bunch of regrets. And the other one um, is think how you will feel in the future because we find that's a great motivator for getting us to do something Pursuing a long-term goal. That's right. Yeah. Consider uh, your future self. Yeah. And so, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. So turning to the punk music, um, the punk scene, give me some of the, share with me one or two of the best or craziest stories that you have from that arena. Crazy stories. Well, you know, I'll, I'll start off with an example from the book, actually, that ties into failure rule number five a bit, right? So, um, I write about Elgin James, who's a mixed race kid from the Boston hardcore punk scene. Um, and um, he ended up uh, being the leader of a violent street gang oriented to the hardcore punk scene. They were straight edge gangs so that they didn't do drugs, they didn't drink, uh, and uh, that, which is, you know, a noble thing, right? I used to be a, a straight edge kid myself, and that's a, a, a great kind of subgenre of the hardcore punk world. But this group took it far, too far. They were very puritanical, and they were essentially beating up kids at, at shows that either drank or did drugs or sold drugs, and they became very violent. And it was a very negative influence. And so he was the leader of the street gang. They were even um, featured on an episode of Gangland, Gangland on the History Channel. Uh, FBI was after him, all kinds of stuff. And Elgin then had a turning point. You know, at some point he turned away from violence, he renounced it, and he was able to realize that he wasn't his failures, although he had to face the consequences of those failures. Um, and he uh, ended up getting sentenced uh, on an extortion charge from gang activity. Uh, but he had already begun his redemptive journey by the time he got sentenced. And he's quoted on the day of sentencing you know, talking about how this was very paradoxical because it was it was the worst of his past uh, and the best of his future kind of all uh, converging on one day because on that day, he actually got signed to Universal Pictures uh, for screenwriting for his first film. So Elgin had moved with his girlfriend to LA, left gang life, and ended up um, becoming uh, a well-known screenwriter. He was a mentee to Robert Redford. Uh, Ed Harris wrote a letter to the judge at a sentencing, so did Robert Redford. He ended up being the screenwriter uh, along with Kurt Sutter for Mind FX, the spinoff to Sons of Anarchy. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I use that example of someone who had this ethical kind of moral failure, faced the consequences of that, but still separated his identity from that, was able to move forward and to 
bring his unique talents to the world in a way that only he could bring them as a screenwriter and to actually go and succeed in that. And he has. And side kind of fun fact, he's also the half-brother of Jocko Willink. So very oh, interesting okay. kind, of, kind of story interesting. there. Yeah. Um, so may I share a story with you? Yeah. What's that? May I share a story with you? Yeah, sure. So I've got a good friend from college who has really made a name for himself as a punk photographer. Hmm. And he, you know, he's got a day job as an executive, but he, this is his passion. He's been doing it for years and going to concerts, like, I don't know, five, six nights a week. And recently he got us full access passes to punk and drublick in Sacramento. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And, you know, there were no effects and get dead were there bomb pops. Those, you know, there's bands like that. Anyway, so we're behind the stage or on the stage while the bands are playing and get dead was fantastic. If you're familiar with them, Sam King, the lead singers, I think incredible. Um, but anyways, he's on stage in his socks and shorts and he's like, <laughs> gets up in front of the crowd. He's like, I just took mushrooms th- 30 minutes ago and they're starting to kick in. And then he did his whole set, you know, kind of on yeah, yeah. multiple substances. Um, right. And then the other thing that was interesting is we talked to Fat Mike of No, no FX uh, oh, before his set. And Alan was saying that, you know, there was, I guess he was not with No FX for a couple of years. And he said, you know, one of the rumors going around was that you killed somebody. Is that true? And Fat Mike was like, nah, it's like, that's a rumor. But I'll tell you what did happen. And he said, what happened was I was performing in a, a small venue. And after the show, some guy was, drunk and pissed off and coming at me for some reason. And he wanted to throw down. And so we, we got in this fight and I happened to be wearing cowboy boots with spurs on him. And mm-hmm. he went down to the floor. I kicked him with my cowboy boots, but the spur caught him in the face and ripped his eye out. And so his oh. eye was hanging down his face and the guy was so, I, I don't know what he was on enraged, drunk, high. He went to his car to get his gun and fat Mike's people kind of pulled him out the back door but this guy kept coming after Fat Mike for a couple of years as a result. And that's why he wasn't in the band No Effects. I was like, wow, you lead a different life than I do. And that's quite a, I didn't hear that story. Wow. wow. Yeah, I never. But I, I think it might be in the documentary about Fat Mike. Because um, yeah, he's had a, an insane life. Like, yeah, there's some wild stuff. Like, he left home with a vagabond for like two weeks, and his parents didn't even notice he was gone as a kid. <laughs> that explains a lot. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I mean, just, and he lived under a bridge with this guy for two weeks. Yeah. Wow. And just kind of showed up afterwards, and neither parent said anything. Like, he just went home, got a bowl of cereal, and started eating cereal. And, yeah. and I think he, he asked his mom about it years later. And his mom said, Oh, we just knew you were one of those kids that could deal with anything. Apparently, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, <yeah>. and <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it goes back to I mean, like some some of those stories like that where there's these, uh, let's say, uh, gaps in parenting that aren't that healthy. Um, yeah. Depending on the individual, that might actually be kind of the input that causes them to become their highest creative and unique self in the world, right? I mean, yeah, uh, like John Joseph from the Cro-Mags, who um, you know wrote the forward to failure rules. Um, you know, he grew up on the streets of, of New York and, uh, you know, was, was in jail, was homeless, was dealing drugs. I mean, um, you know, was in a foster home for years, was abused uh, mentally, sexually, everything else. Went through all this stuff 
Um, and it's really his overcoming of all that through whether it's plant-based diet or exercise or his religion, Hare Krishna, all these things that have made him kind of this motivational figure, both in the underground punk scene and in kind of like, you know, uh, vegan spaces, as well as like, uh, you know, in, um, in, uh, in uh, endurance, you know, sports spaces. And um, you wonder for those type of people who responded to those horrible circumstances in a way where they overcame them, which, which isn't most people. A lot of people will crumble crumble in those yeah. circumstances. But for those certain people, had they not gone through that, would they be doing such extraordinary things? You know, uh, and I think there's something to that, to, to looking at that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think perhaps it does away with things like wanting to please other people incessantly. Yeah. Um, perhaps it does away with things like giving a shit about society's rules and expectations to some extent. So yes. it frees you up to do to take risks. It does. It does. It frees you up to speak your mind when you're saying things are unpopular. I think it also frees you up to detach yourself from the material world where mm -hmm. you're not, um, you know, you're, you're not going to not speak your mind or not pursue something you really want because you're afraid of, of losing a house or losing a car. Uh, not that you would ever, you know, intentionally want to put things in jeopardy, but, you know, I, I think of John in particular there, like, you know, non-attachment is a thing for him. I mean, he tells a story once on the Rich Roll podcast about how he had like $150,000 saved up and could have bought a house, could have bought a bunch of things. But instead, he started, he opened up like this, I don't know exactly what it was, but some sort of facility to feed the homeless. And that's what he invested his money in because wow. that's who he is, right? And so like, would that have happened if he wasn't once homeless? Uh, would he have such a kind of a non-materialistic, non-attachment kind of mentality in the world? You know, I would say probably not. Yeah, or such deep empathy for those that are homeless, because it, it sounds right. like that's a motivating factor. Correct. I feel you. Yes, um, I've been you. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So, tell me, just uh, geeking out a little bit on the music side, what are some of your favorite bands? <clears throat> so, I I'm, I'm more lean towards like the East Coast New York hardcore type stuff, right? To me, I love like I still like a lot of West Coast punk rock stuff. Like, big fan of like you know Rancid and uh, all that I stuff. Love Rancid. But I, I like New York hardcore style stuff and I like the street punk and the oi and the pub rock stuff, you know? Um, so like, you know, some of my all-time favorite bands, I guess, would be Madballs, one of my favorite bands from New York, Agnostic Front, you know, I love old Black Flag, Bad Brains, I was gonna ask, yeah. Blood for Blood, Sheer Terror. I just saw Sheer Terror Saturday night, you know, Paul Bear from, from Sheer Terror. It was his 55th birthday. Um, and then I like a lot of like the, the street rock stuff. I mean, even super popular stuff like, you know, like Dropkick Murphys, which come from that world. Even Dropkick, yeah. um, but, um, you know, the band The Business from England, old Oi band, I put out a record for them. Singer Mickey Fitz passed away, sadly, uh, you know, several years back. Um, but yeah, so I'm kind of more in that style. I always found that there was more of a, a spirit of looking for higher solutions or deeper meanings uh, in the pain in life uh, in hardcore versus just punk rock. Right? I found like a lot of punk rock was kind of more goofy or nihilistic or mm -hmm. hedonistic. Whereas hardcore, I mean, even had like just thinking about like shelter or chroma where they had this kind of like spiritual seeking mentality in their lyrics, you know, which to them was really in line with Hare Krishna uh, or even the Bad Brains where they're talking about Rastafarianism and higher power or Straight Edge itself, which wasn't religiously based, but it was about trying to find a better way to live. And I felt like hardcore was always looking for, for 
some sort of positive solution. And that's why it always attracted me. Yeah, I'll have to check out Chromax. Yeah. Age of Quarrel, most classic album. Yeah. Okay. And so in wrapping up, what did I not ask you that I should have? Um, I don't know. I think we covered a lot organically here. Um, I, I don't know that we, I mean, we went through all the rules of failure. We covered the punk rock. Um, we, we went on some deep kind of psychological tangents. So I think, I think we covered everything. I mean, is there anything else that you can think of? What about, what about where people can get a hold of you or a website or where they can find the book? So again, I'll flash the book here. It's the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, authentics, failure rules with an exclamation mark. My name's Andrew Thorpe King. There's no E in the end of Thorpe. So you can go to andrewthorpeking.com. Uh, and from there, that can uh, travel you into connecting with me on Instagram, where I'm the most active. Get to my YouTube channel, where I produce videos, where I kind of bring the content of the book alive in a different way. It's also a free failure rules mini course you can sign up for, uh, where you get some distilled content free to your inbox and ongoing content to your inbox from my mailing list. <clears throat> and I also started a, a clothing company echoing the themes of the book called Soul on Fire Supply Company. So there's some kick-ass merch designs. You can get them on the merch page. Um, even have a special cigar line for cigar lovers there with designs uh, relative to the cigar world. Uh, so check out the merch too and go buy the book. You're going to love it. If you don't read, buy the audio book. Got a great audio book version read by Jay Singh, who was an actor on the show uh, Twin Peaks on Showtime. Uh, it's really good. So check it out. Hey, well, Andrew, I got to say thank you so much. I greatly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I really appreciate the work you're doing. I, I think the idea for the book is much needed. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. It's a great conversation. My great pleasure. And for the rest of you, the listeners out there, please feel free to like, rate, review, and share if you loved this. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. <laughs> That's it for the Evolved Caveman Podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 